I want to invite Holly Thompson to come um, and read from 1 Samuel 11 and 12 for us. All right. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Israel. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back, isn't this Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to get her. When she came in, he had sex with her. Now she had been purifying herself after her monthly period. Then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I'm pregnant, she said. Then David sent a message to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked about the welfare of Joab and the army and how the battle was going. Then David told Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. However, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with all his master's servants. He didn't go down to his own house. David was told Uriah didn't go to his own house. So David asked Uriah, haven't you just returned from a journey? Why didn't you go home? The chest and Israel and Judah are all living in tents, Uriah told David, and my master Joab and my master's troops are camping in the open field. How could I go home and eat, drink, and have sex with my wife? I swear on your very life I will not do that. Then David told Uriah, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day. The next day David called for him, and he ate and drank, and David got him drunk. In the evening, Uriah went out to sleep in the same place alongside his master's servants, but he did not go down to his own home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. He wrote in the letter, place Uriah at the front of the fiercest battle and then pull back from him so that he will be struck down and die. So as Joab was attacking the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew there was strong warriors. When the city's soldiers came out and attacked Joab, some of the people from David's army fell. Uriah the Hittite was also killed. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. You are that man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. Thanks, Holly. This summer, we've been studying David's life with God. <clears throat> and that if you haven't figured it out by now in the Bible, King David is pretty important. That's kind of an understatement, right? Maybe second only to Jesus. Because David is the physical embodiment of God's promises and his victory 
for God's people. David's that tangible flesh and blood harbinger of God's kingdom. Up until now, there's a lot to admire about David, including his amazing ability to fight. Like, I think if we did family feud style when you talked about uh, David and you asked who else in the life of David do you think of when you think of David, we would probably think of Goliath would be like the top tier one. Um, maybe Jonathan, maybe Saul, but also certainly Bathsheba. So there's been a lot to admire up until now, though. David's fighting ability, David's tenderness, David's creativity and conflict, even as he, he gets help from, from kind of auxiliary characters like Abigail, his mercy and his grace to those who don't deserve it, like last week, that story that we heard about with, Mephib- with uh, Mephibosheth. It seems that David really is who everyone hoped he would be. That would be really refreshing for us to, to get a leader who we, was who we hoped he or she was and would be. It's hard to really identify with that sort of leader, though, right? We want someone who's perfect, but then when we get them, it's easy to, to disconnect or to resent them for it. Just look at the kind of heroes we get these days. We don't even get real heroes in our movies and our, our books and in our, our myths these days. There's no black and white cowboy hats anymore. Have you noticed this? Like, that used to be the thing. Those are the movies my dad likes, right? Well, Chuck Norris might have been the, the last true black and white cowboy, right? But now we get heroes that are deeply flawed, right? Kind of the anti-hero. We get... Instead of instead of Clint Eastwood uh, or John Wayne, we get we get Batman, right? Or we get Walter White, or we get Claire Underwood, or Don Draper, or Olivia Pope, right? There, there's no clear cut. These are anti-heroes. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we get this story about our hero David. Perhaps we're not as shocked as we should be to find out that this golden boy king of Israel got into some pretty dark stuff. Maybe these days it makes more sense for our leaders to have such fatal flaws. But that's not where this story goes. That's not where the gospel story goes. You see, in the story of David and Bathsheba, and make no mistake, this is an awful story. This is a story about murder. This is a story about rape. Let's not soften that. But we, we get through David, we get a close-up at the anatomy of sin, how sin works, what it looks like, how it works even in the life of someone, quote, after God's own heart, and how it works in our world, how it works in our hearts. If you're sitting here, when I said that, kind of squirming a bit, feeling kind of vulnerable and exposed, you're, you're not alone, but you're also not beyond forgiveness, not beyond salvation. The gospel of Jesus is good news per, precisely because it has everything to do with sin. God's not surprised by our sin. The gospel is good news because we can be forgiven. Even today, we can be found in Christ. We have the whole shape of our lives changed, reformed 
by God's Spirit into the shape of Jesus' life. So we go to our story, and we, we find David starts this story like most of, of the story of David up until now. David is in control. I think a lot of this is signified in the narrative by his ability to send. He sends for something, and it happens. He sends for someone, and they come. People do his bidding. He wants something, and he gets it. David sent Joab out, and he goes. David sends someone to find out about Bathsheba, and they go. David sends some, a messenger to get Bathsheba, and they bring her to him. There's this really short loop, this really short cause and effect of what David wants and what David gets. This is the height of power. After all, David is Israel's king. If anyone should get this, David should get this. But isn't this our dream too? Like, this is our dream even when we don't know it's our dream. It's our dream when we're little kids. When you were a baby, like, oh, maybe, maybe being a baby is not a good example because when you were a baby, you didn't even have words and you just screamed and like a bunch of adults ran to you, right? Like, like maybe it's when you started to have words and you figured out people weren't always going to run to attend to you. Maybe that's when the conflict happens. Maybe that's when this dream grows. You get a little bigger and people stop doing what you want them to. Your, your sister doesn't want to play with you how and when you want. Your parents don't want to bow to your every whim and vice versa. <laughs> you have to learn how to negotiate a world that you didn't make and that you don't control. Like, maybe that's the height, like, that is the definition of what it means to be human. To live in a world that you didn't create and to negotiate a world that you don't control. Friends and coworkers and professors and clients and spouses and boyfriends and girlfriends and neighbors and enemies and strangers and family that you didn't create and you don't control. But David has control. He has the power and authority to send and people go, to send for people when they come. He, he sends Joab, he sends someone to fact find about the woman he's got the hots for, and he sends messengers and they go and they bring her. All of this sending and all of this going allows David a freedom and a confidence and an ability that we probably covet a little bit of. And it's a shape of his life where he gets what he wants. The operative words for David in this story are look, beautiful, and take. He looks and he sees her, and she, when he sees her, he thinks she's beautiful, and he asks that she come to him, and he takes her for his own. The more I read this this week, the more it dawned on me, maybe this is, this is the primordial pattern for sin. This is, this is the anatomy. This is how sin works. You see, in Genesis, we find Adam and Eve circling around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3, 6 says, The woman saw that the tree was beautiful. She looked and saw that the tree was beautiful. And then she took some of its fruit for herself and gave it also to her husband who ate it too. It turns out there's not a whole 
lot of originality to original sin. It's the next verse, though, in, in Genesis 3 that shows a shift, right? It says, Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. This is a shift. This is a shift for them from that agency and that, that freedom that they knew to a slavery that they brought about. They gained an awareness and a self-consciousness of their nakedness, of their lack. Their lives were now out of their control. The cover-up was on for them, literally. And so now we flash back to the David story. We also see a shift. David goes from having power and control and agency. He sends folks and they go to now Bathsheba sends word to David. It's a little out of his control here. David's sin has spun him out of control. Now he sends word to Joab. He sends, he says, send me Uriah. And Joab sends Uriah to David. David's sin has unwound his calling as a king. It's starting to pull like a thread from a sweater. David's now become self-conscious of just how exposed he is how exposed he is before God, how exposed he is with Bathsheba, how exposed he is with Uriah, how exposed he is in front of all of Israel. His life is now out of control, and the cover-up is on. This is where look beautiful and take has gotten David. This is the anatomy of sin. It's like a virus. It's bent on self-perpetuating. It tries to find a host to make its home in. That's how sin is. We, it's not just something we do. It is something we do. But it's something that also has us. It takes us, each of us personally, all of us systematically. Look beautiful. Take dominates the shape. It dominates our mindset. Even as kids. Like every kid falls into this pattern this the when when they first go to a gas station and like look and see a beautiful piece of gum and they take it and they put it in their pocket and their parents don't know until they get home and then they have to go back and apologize or pay for it or whatever that's that's the same pattern in that wild like from the garden through david to us always or it's the same pattern of of a man by the glow of his laptop screen looks and sees something beautiful and decides to take it even if it's mental um, for himself. Or it's a young woman who obsessively looks over and over and compares herself on social media, sees something beautiful that she wants to be and takes it for herself. It's the same pattern for real estate developers who look around and they see a beautiful corner of Durham and they want to take it for their gain and for themselves are missionaries and church planners or slave ships and colonizers who look and they find somewhere beautiful and they take it for themselves without concern of who's already there or how God has been working there for a long time. This strain runs deep. It cuts deeper 
and deeper. It spirals downward, and that spiral gets tighter and tighter every time it goes around, and it brings about more sins and, and more lies and more deception and more violence. It seems so desperate. Gosh, it seems, it seems hopeless. Don't get me wrong, for someone like Uriah in this story or, or someone like Bathsheba, it's, it, in this story, in this life, it is pretty hopeless. They're the ones that have been trod under the wheel of sin. That's pretty much it for this life. It seems there's no break in the cycle. And then, and then the Lord sends Nathan to David. The Lord sends. This is a break. This is when the Lord breaks in. This is when the Lord breaks David down. This is when the Lord, through Nathan, recaptures the story from David's sin. Nathan tells a simple story. A simple story. This is like a parable that Nathan tells about, about some sheep, about a poor man and a rich man, and the rich man takes and exploits the poor man. And David is completely scandalized for it. But this is a trap that Nathan sets for David, and David walks right into it. There's really only ever one conclusion, only one right interpretation of the story. There's no way to justify or to twist the intent. There's a good guy and a bad guy, and David passed his listening comprehension test and was implicated. David, in Nathan's words, was that man in the story. I'm reminded of Flannery O'Connor when she talks about why she writes like this. She writes like Nathan preaches at David. She writes stories like this one that shock and implicate the reader. And she says, to the heart of hearing, you have to shout. And to the heart of seeing, you have to draw really large, startling figures. So Nathan drew a really simple picture with large, startling figures of what sin had made David so that David could actually see. And it broke David. We find in our, our reading how important, we found this summer in our reading how important name meanings are. When, when you encounter someone in scripture, their names almost always mean something. And Nathan, we can kind of ignore that because like we know Nathan. So that's, that's a relatively normal name. But Nathan's name means gift and it's a little ironic that Nathan is God's gift to David that David might be convicted of his sin so that he can now see himself Nathan is God's gift and that gift is so that that David can now see because he's been blinded by his sin from Psalm 51 we get we get David's prayer song. That's a, the great thing about the Psalms is they almost all, some, some are less obvious than others, but they almost all have a context in, in Israel's story. And a lot of them were written by David. And, and we'll get a little, a little note, a little tag that tells us what the contexts are. And so Psalm 51, and before you read it in your Bibles, you'll see like this was a song that David wrote when he encountered Nathan. This is the psalm that we've been using for our confession all summer. And towards the end, David prays, 
You don't want sacrifices. If I gave you an entirely burnt offering, you wouldn't be pleased. David prays, a broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. It seems that that Nathan's words to David have, have broken in, but they've also broken something in that cycle. They've broken something in David. Emerging now, we, we see a new shape for David's life, new possibilities. It's a shape that I can only describe as, as downright Eucharistic, as, as cross-shaped, as Christ-shaped. It's a shape that will enact here in a few minutes around this table. David's gone from look, beautiful, take, to take, bless, break, and give. Take, bless, break, and give. When Jesus gathered for a feast, a Passover meal with his disciples, he was doing a whole lot at that table. He was remembering the way that God broke in and interrupted the sin and domination of Pharaoh in Egypt. The look, beautiful, take machinery of Pharaoh's empire of oppression. But he was also referring to himself at that table. The one whom God might send, because God has the agency. God sends. He is the sending one. He gestured to himself as one that would be taken, as one who would be blessed before he was broken on the cross for our sake and our place. To absorb, to repurpose sin, to take it out of circulation to break the cycle. That body, that blood, that would be given, given, given to those, given to us, even the ones that participate in Jesus' death. It's here in that death that we can have hope. It's there in God raising his son from the dead by the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might come to God broken, with our cycles broken. And this is really disorienting. When you're used to that cycle, to jump those tracks, you don't even know who you are or where you are anymore. But we come to God broken, torn up by sin, not just because of some nagging guilt. We can have guilt over sin, sure. Because we need to get off of that cycle, get off of those tracks. We need to have our eyes opened like David. We need to have our lives reshaped, shaped like this. Take, bless, break, give. Do you see how different of a pattern of life that is? Like, completely different pattern of life. Instead of walking around looking for something to take, now we look to God. That's what the, the blessed part, that blessing kind of posture, it's really hard to have a blessing posture in look beautiful take. That's a, a view that, that's always something that we want or something we need or how we can bend this world to get something or bend others to our will. Now it's changed this, this wide openness That's what blessing does. If you bless the Lord, you're wide open before God. 
It's a wide open committal to God. It's a returning to God in our worship. That's what repent means, is to turn. To turn from walking away to turn to walking towards God. We can now focus our attention on where God wants us to go, who he wants us to bless. Look, beautiful, take is a dead end. It's a, it's a cul-de-sac kind of life. It seeks to capture and dominate beauty for ourselves. But on the cross, on the cross, Jesus displays and he distributes a, a sacrificial beauty. That's the most truly beautiful kind of beauty. It's one that is born of sacrifice. He distributes it to others, even to those who least deserve it. As he blesses the Lord, Jesus on the cross commits his spirit into God's hands. Because this is the way of a gift. It's made out of grace. Grace is its start, and grace is how it all ends. This posture, this shape, this way of life, is grace that allows us to receive forgiveness and offer it to others. What if we embodied this? What if this is what the Christian life meant? To take on this shape. What would it look like if we walked around as broken and poured out body and blood of Christ in this world? I think it changes everything. Not the least of, of what we think about sin. I think if, if, if we acted like this, if, if we worked from this place of brokenness, that sin would no longer for us be a source of shame. It's not something like, the, like Adam and Eve or David that caused us to run for cover or to run to cover things up. This now, because of what God has done in Jesus, means now that we can be aware of sin and that our sin awareness creates God nearness, not distance. That that means that the most sin-aware folks are the most God-near folks in the world. I think that's what Jesus started. That's what he inaugurated in his life. That's why he ate with sinners. <laughs> and the sin awareness doesn't cause us to be uptight or, or cautious. It makes us God-conscious. It makes us secure. It makes us sons and daughters with open lines of communication to God, with communion with God. So that should be our prayer. Rather, for us to be takers, that we might be taken, that we might be taken up in this Christ life, in this kingdom existence. We, we pray, take us, O Lord. That's a sign of of abandon, of, of refusing to take for ourselves. And then the second half of that prayer should be that we faced the depth of our sin, the distance we've fallen short of God's glory, in order that we might rightly see the depth of God's love for us, the cost of his gift of grace of his son and the drastic difference a new life in the spirit makes. 
I think that's all too often the criticism of Christians is that it doesn't really matter that much that Jesus died and rose again or that we've been given the gift of God's spirit among us. What if that filled us? What if that animated us? For this to happen, I think we need breaking. I think we need breaking of old patterns of sin that we we get really comfortable with and we really love a little more than we should. It's kind of a Stockholm syndrome of our sin. For this to happen, we need breaking from the chains of oppression that we have chained to us, but that we also tighten around the legs of others. And we need breaking of the expectations that keep us from following Jesus. We, we think things are going to be one way, and when they aren't, we just jump off. But there's no there. There's only here, and Jesus is here with us. That's it. That's it. Jesus is here with us. So we need a breaking. We need a breaking of those expectations to, to make room for the filling of the fullness of God, that overflow of his grace, that forgiveness that we can offer to others. So we pray. We pray, take us, O Lord, and we, and we pray, break us, O Lord. Because it's in that breaking that we might be mended. It's in that breaking that we might experience God and express his love to others. Will you pray with me? Father, give us courage to pray these prayers. Take us, O Lord, and break us, O Lord. Lord, may it not require a prophet coming and snaring us in our own trap to open our eyes. Send your spirit to open our eyes. Make us aware of sin, not because we, we want to walk around guilty or shameful or cautious. Lord, instead, let us sin boldly because we, we believe in your grace. We believe that you're here and that you're up to something and, and we're just trying to catch up to it by your spirit. Lord, give us the courage to pray those prayers. And it takes courage because having you break in is scary and unpredictable. Having you break us is so threatening. But give us trust. Trust that in your breaking that you might be gentle and and that you've already broken your son on our behalf. You've raised him and, and given him new life on our behalf so that when we die in Christ, we rise in Christ also. Lord, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.